Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We begin our, our Advent series today. The first or the last four Sundays before Christmas make up Advent. We do this every year, and today we're in Matthew chapter 1, specifically looking at verse 23, which says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your son. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us today, that, uh, that we would not merely be educated or instructed, Lord, but that we would be edified and transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't go to a lot of concerts anymore. Um, I say it's because I'm old, but I think it's just because I'm just tired. Because I know lots of old people that go to concerts. I used to go to concerts a lot in the 80s. Uh, lots of heavy metal concerts, some great concerts. Um, one concert I went to, I was about 14, 14 or 15. It was before I could drive. I went to this concert, and uh, we happened to wind up in a situation uh, before the concert began where a large, we could call it a mob, was, uh, was being compressed tighter and tighter together trying to get over these barricades that were preventing people from entering the facility. And as we continued to like, compress, the gates opened out toward us. Well, because of the pressure forward, the gates couldn't open, so people were getting angry, yelling, chance, kill the staff, kill the staff, the whole thing was going on. And uh, it was all kind of fun for a while, right? Of course, I'm 14, so I probably weigh 90 pounds. Uh, I mean, I was a senior in high school, and I weighed 119, so I'm doing, trying to do the math. So I'm a little guy, and we're all packed in. Your arms are all up here. It's really hot. We're in the sun, blazing heat. And as we're there, nobody can get in. The crowd is getting mm, restless. <laughs> they, 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 want, they want to do something. And I noticed that girls around me started fainting, and just dropping, just dropping straight in their place, boom, and then getting trampled on. It was just, it was a really scary situation. Now, those girls were generally bigger than me. <laughs> I was a tiny little guy, and I got really nervous, and so I didn't know what was going to happen. I could not move. I'm way too small. The crowd is way too big. And at that moment, I like to imagine this is an angel, but who knows? I look over, and there's this hulking, giant, big dude who looks at me, and he was previously saying, kill the staff. Now, he looks down at me, and he, he says, you want to get out of here? And I was like, yeah, man, I want to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'll follow you, whatever. And he, he, he says, you're with me. And then he just starts moving people. He just starts moving. I mean, no, nobody has been able to move. This giant starts moving all these people out of the way. So I'm just kind of staying close to him, grabbing his shirt, trying to come along until we finally get to the gates. And then yeah, it's a whole story. I got out only because I was with that guy. If I wasn't with that guy, I never would have got out. It was the most, I had never been happier to be with anybody in my life. <laughs> with that guy. Maybe he was an angel at a Motley Crue concert. Who knows? I don't know. It was crazy. So you know, th there's a thing, right? Like, I was with him, right? At his invitation, I was now with him. I and mean, we've all been in that situation, right, where you have to tell somebody, no, 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 it's okay. She's with me or he's with me. Or you've been that, you've been that plus one where now suddenly, like, oh, no, it's okay. They can come in. They're with me. You, you know what that is. And to be with somebody, it means, well, it means that you're, you're, you're close in proximity, 
right? It can mean that. It can mean that you are more than that, right? You're close relationally to be with somebody. Um, it can mean that you are being supported by that person. To be with somebody is significant. It matters. And we're actually created for that kind of fellowship, community, communion, but especially so as it relates to us and our maker. We are made to be with him. Unfortunately, sin really doesn't facilitate that, right? In fact, it gets in the way. And one of the things that we see in the promise of the coming of Jesus in Advent is the promise that God will be with his people. He will be with us. And this is significant for us, for this is significant for you, because the nearness of God, the nearness of God is your good, and the nearness of God, God with you, will be the joy and the strength for all who believe. In the midst of a world that is filled with hopelessness and heartache and heartbreak, the nearness of God is the joy and the strength of all who believe. This is not just something that we say, something that we sing at Christmas time. God with us, Emmanuel, is defining for us. It helps to define who we are as individuals, but also as Christians. Now, when we're celebrating Advent here, let me just give you a little bit of context. In celebrating Advent, Advent means arrival. That's what the word means. It means arrival. And so this on the church calendar, and we don't really follow church calendars, right? Baptists are not big. Historically, Baptists are not big on the church calendar. But we wind up doing things like Christmas, Easter, things like that, which are a part of the church calendar. And, and Advent is on the church calendar. It is a season, right? It is the, it is the four Sundays before Christmas that reflect the anticipation of the people of God for the arrival, Advent, for the arrival of Jesus. So the focus is on the promises that have been given throughout Scripture for the one who would save us from our sins. The focus is not just on the promise, but ultimately on the person. So it's very much about Jesus, not just the birth of Jesus, because that is what we are technically celebrating, the birth of Christ, but it's about Christ. And that's really why we do this. Why do we bother to celebrate Christmas, if Christmas is not commanded in the scripture. There's one thing that, that, that the New Testament church is commanded to do on the regular. Gather for worship on the Lord's Day. Word and sacrament. That's what we're commanded to do. That's our ritual, by the way. That's why Baptists generally are a little suspicious of church calendars. It all gets to be a little too much for us. So historically, that's why. Like, no, we have one thing, and this is what we do every week. So why are we embracing Christmas? First of all, it's awesome. That's why we like Christmas, because Christmas is cool. It's kind of a fun thing, right? But really, really, it's because it's fundamentally an opportunity to go into Christology, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And because it is such a unique cultural moment, particularly where we are, where everybody is now at least implicitly aware that this is the Jesus season, right? At least they're aware of it to some degree, whether they believe in it or not. So we take the opportunity to focus on Advent, to teach Christology, uh, to emphasize the promises, and to look at what Scripture had to say about the coming Messiah. This year, the focus is the promise, the promise of Advent, right? The promise of the arrival. And so, you know, we heard um, Laura talk about this during our, our, our singing today, right? That there has been a promise given from the beginning that God would 
dwell with his people, that God would draw near, and that this would ultimately come through a Messiah, a Savior, a servant, right? So from the Garden of Eden all the way to the nation of Israel and everything in between, there was this promise. In the Garden, there was fellowship until it was fractured because of sin. And once that fellowship was fractured, right, the nearness of God ceased to be experienced the way that it was. But even in that moment, the promise was, your offspring will one day rise up and crush the devil who brought in all of this misery, and then from Genesis, we go to Moses, right? We go to Abraham, right? We're in, in Abraham, we see the, the, the promises of God to Abraham. I'm going to bless the world through you. Through you, your offspring is going to be a blessing to the whole world. It's not just that I'm going to make you a nation, but the father of many nations, because through him, the Messiah would come. Then we can jump to, the, to Moses, and here we have the, the, the tabernacle where God dwells with his people, the picture of God dwelling with his people close for worship, for access. We have the priesthood. We have the sacrifices all pointing to Jesus. We have the prophets who prophesied that the Messiah would come. He would bear the sins of the people. He would reconcile us to our maker. On and on it goes. These promises throughout all of the Old Testament. The Savior is coming. God is coming and coming close so when we finally get to the New Testament and we get to the, the Gospel of Matthew, we read about Joseph and Mary. Now, Mary, a, a young person engaged to Joseph, they're, they're betrothed, so it's a little bit different than engagement, but it is similar, right? They're not yet married, but they are bound together. They have not come together intimately yet. That waits for the marriage night. But they are promised to each other, and suddenly she is found to be with child. Now, Mary is told, listen, uh, obviously this is confusing for you because you have not had intercourse. You, you have kept yourself you know, uh, on the straight and narrow. You, you've, you've followed the Lord. You, you've protected yourself from all of that. But you are with child, and it is the gift of God. It is a miraculous child. It is the Son of God that you carry, and it is the Holy Spirit who put that child there. So Joseph finds out that she is pregnant, and Joseph doesn't fully understand what's happening, so he determines in his heart, listen, something's happened here. I don't trust it. I'm going to go ahead and give her a certificate of divorce. They weren't technically married, but because they were promised to each other, they have to go through this official step. So he's going to put her away quietly. He doesn't want to shame her, but he just can't deal with this because it's a little bit too much for him. And as he's ready to send her away to, to break off this betrothal, verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1 says... But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph, is, Joseph is, is visited, and he's confronted with these three significant truths. Really more than that, but let's, let me just highlight three. One, he's confronted with, the, the, I think, the frustrating beauty of the virgin birth. It had to be frustrating for him, right? Because that's his girl, Right? They've been waiting for each other. He finds her pregnant, and now he has to believe, right? This is from the Lord. It's not from another relationship. The Lord put this child in her. So this had to be confusing. It changes plans. I'm sure they had plans. You know, it's like you get married, you have plans, you kind of map out what your future is going to be like. God interrupts all of that, changes all of that with this. So we have a virgin birth. The son that she carries is of her body, 
but no other man. It is the child of God, the son of God. So we talk about the miracle. He's, he's confronted with the person that Mary is carrying, right? Not just any child. The son of God or the, the son of man, as he goes by oftentimes. The one who would come to redeem, who would save people from their sins. This is not a mere prophet. This is not a teacher. This is not a special person or a bigwig. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. That's what it is. So let's talk about that. That's what I want. I'm all of this to get to this. I just want us to get to this Emmanuel principle. How? How is God with us through Jesus? And why? How is God with us in any meaningful, significant way with the birth of Christ? And why would it happen? I'm going to give you three things. Three ways in which God is with us through Christ. Number one, in taking our place, God is with us. Number two, by dwelling in us. And number three, by loving us. These are three ways in which God is with us through Christ. Number one, God is with us because Jesus took our place. Now, for Jesus to take our place to save us from our sins, he had to be one of us. And so here we're talking about the doctrine of the incarnation. I'm going to be a little nerdy here, slightly nerdy, just to be a little particular, a little careful, make some distinctions here for us. The incarnation is the eternal son of God, sometimes called the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, right? The eternal son of God becoming one of us. The incarnation in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. So Jesus, right, Jesus of Nazareth, right, born of Mary, is human. But he's not only human. Right? He, he is born. It is a real birth. He wasn't just a, a spiritual apparition. Right? He didn't just look human. He was human. He was born of Mary. In fact, we can go back to Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That's where we get that. Or if we go to, you guys know, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the one who was born, truly born. The eternal son was born. All right, so we've got to wrap our head around that. But to do that without deviating into some weird ideas about who Jesus the person was, we need to articulate that he was fully human and fully divine. And the church has gone through great pains over the centuries to articulate what this means for us, what the scripture actually teaches. Now, the, the words are hypostatic union. I know that that sounds like science or science fiction, depending on your perspective. But the hypostatic union is a way that the church historically has tried to articulate what we have in the person of Jesus Christ. The hypostatic union speaks to the fact that the person of Jesus has two natures. He has a 
divine nature because He is God, but He also has a human nature because He's one of us. Now, in the hypostatic union, right, we have one being who is not 50% God and 50% man. This is not a comic book. He's not Spider-Man. He's not a mutant. He's, he is not 50-50. He is, he is fully God, and he is somehow fully man. This is the mystery of the hypostatic union. And the great confessional clarity that we have or creedal clarity that we have on this comes from the Council of Chalcedon. And, and Chalcedon puts it this way, right, in brief, one of the sections is that in Jesus Christ is recognized two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. So we have one person, two natures. It's not a mingling. It's not a mess. Jesus has a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. So Christ, the person, two natures. And this is how he is our sacrifice, our substitute. How does Jesus take our place? It's only possible when the Son of God takes on human form, becomes fully man so that he can stand in our place and receive what we deserve or achieve what we need. So we have in the incarnation the necessity of Christ being one of us to be our substitute. So we have the incarnation as one of the things that really demonstrates that God is with us and for us because that is what allows Jesus to fulfill the law for us, right? Without, without the incarnation, without the hypostatic union, substitution isn't possible. Now that Jesus is incarnate, he can be our substitute and he fulfills the law. Matthew 5, 17 is one place to go where Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled. He kept the law of God. He was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. In every way that you and I are disobedient to God, Jesus was perfectly faithful to God in his praying in his fasting, in his singing songs of praise, in his love, in his sacrifice, in his service, in his mercy, in his kindness, in his patience. Jesus was perfect. He kept God's law. He fulfilled God's will. And when he did this, he did this for us. He did this in our place so that his righteousness could be given to us to, to cover our unrighteousness. So Jesus takes our place in, by being incarnated, by fulfilling the law, and by suffering for our sins. How can he take our place and suffer for our sins if he isn't one of us? Hebrews makes this very clear throughout the whole book of Hebrews, but, but let me just give you a, a couple of places to, to think of. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says it like this. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means on our behalf. He died to accomplish something for us. Or Isaiah 53, if we go all the way back. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, another Christmas passage, right? Prophesying, promising of this advent. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For Jesus to take our burden, our punishment, our guilt, he had to be one of us. 
But in order to take on the sin and the guilt of all and actually be a suitable substitute, he had to be divine. Fully God, fully man. Jesus takes our place. How is God with us? We know that God is with us because Jesus was incarnated to be among us, not just to experience life, but to give us life, to redeem us, to actually save. So number one, Jesus takes our place, and in doing that, God is with us. Number two, God is with us through Jesus by dwelling in us. Now, this is another promise. Well, we can go all the way back to Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, we have this promise of a new covenant that's going to come. At this point, they're in the old covenant, right? A covenant given to the nation of Israel saying, like, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you as a nation. And if you disobey me, I'm going to curse you as a nation. So when you're faithful, you're going to flourish. And when you're unfaithful, you're going to flounder. But in that covenant that was largely based on their obedience, there was this constant promise that one is going to come who is going to redeem you. It's going to be a new covenant that is not based on your obedience, but based on the obedience of the Son of God. And in this covenant, there are certain blessings. Listen, Ezekiel 36, 26, speaking of this new covenant, says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'm going to put within you. That's like attitude. It's a way of being. It's a new you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is, this is a tremendous blessing that God would not only dwell with his people in a tabernacle that you had to go to to draw near to God, but that God would dwell in his people. Collectively, yes, as a church, but individually within us, you can't get any closer. How much closer can God be? How much more can we be with God than he would take up residency in each of our bodies? Not making us God, but making us temples. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous... 19, there we go. I was like, that's wrong. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is the point, right? You have been redeemed. Christ was your substitute, incarnation, fulfilling the law, sacrifice, and now the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You belong to God, so glorify God with your body. Or Romans The book of Romans also makes this, this same point, Romans 8, 11, when it says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So God is with his people. He is with us. He is with every Christian. This is done by Christ becoming one of us, and saving us through his substitution. This is accomplished by the Holy Spirit living within us, taking up residency, so God is truly present. He's truly there. But number three, God is with us in that he genuinely, truly, profoundly loves us. And this is, I think, the most significant way in which you are with somebody. You can be with somebody because they're close in proximity. 
Or you can be with somebody because you are close relationally, because they know you and they understand you and they love you. They support you. And this is what we have. Listen, if you've been in the church at all, if you've been around Christians and you have heard that God loves you, you've heard it presented evangelistically, you've heard it read in the Bible over and over again, God loves you, you've heard it. Maybe you've read it. Do you believe it? Sometimes I think we get a little confused. Most of you know John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Just to make it clear, for God so loved the world, his love for the world, his love for sinners was so great, so epic, so significant, so real, that he sent his son to be our substitute. He sent his son to die on the cross, to take our place to be with us. That's how much God loves us. Or Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love for us. His love for us is seen in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Or Ephesians 1, 4, we looked at this last week, that in love he predestined us to adoption as sons. Everything that God does for you, Christian, everything that God is doing in your life is connected to his love for you. Yes, everything he does is connected to his glory. It's the primary agenda in all that God does, in all that happens. It's all working towards his glory. But you have this assurance that whatever is happening in your life, whatever God's hands are on in your life, that is all happening in accordance with, as an outgrowth of his love for you. this assurance that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Even when it's confounding, if not confusing, frustrating, or fearful. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, It says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You wonder, if, if, is, if is God going to give you what you need? Is God going to be there when you need him? God has already given you his son, Jesus. And that doesn't mean he's not going to give any more. It means he's already given you that. Why would he withhold anything else? God loves sinners. And if you confess Christ, if you believe, then you have this assurance that God loves you. And this is what it means for God to be with us. He loves us, which means that he is for us. God is for you in the midst of your questions, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your rebellion. God still loves you. He doesn't quit. He doesn't peace out. He doesn't abandon. He doesn't give up. 
Just because you can sometimes be a nightmare of a person doesn't mean that God's going to retaliate in any way. He doesn't do that because he's not like us. He loves us. That's what it means for God to be with us. He is truly for us. He will not leave you. He will not lose you. Run as much as you want. You can't outrun him. He cares. <laughs> he cares. He actually cares. He's not a distant God. He's not an imaginary God. He is a God who cares, who actually has concern for you and your well-being. He is compassionate and kind. He is very present in your life, very much there, because he's not just present. He's present and he's concerned and he's active. He supports. He helps. This is one of the blessings of what Advent is all about. God promising what we have ruined in this world, he will rebuild. What we have fractured, God will heal. We have separated ourselves from God by our sin, but God reconciles us together by his grace. Advent is, in part, the promise of Emmanuel. God will be with us. So what do we do with it? Um, I just want to read four psalms. Okay, I'm not going to read four psalms. I'm going to read four verses out of four psalms. We don't have that much time. Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. The Lord does not leave us. He does not abandon us. He is always there. But we have to set the Lord before us. Like we have to recognize and intentionally choose to embrace this reality. God is always there, always present. I live before the face of God. No matter what is facing me, God is present. He is with me. Therefore, I will not be shaken, is what he says. It's not because I'm strong. It's not because my faith is so great. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes, honestly, sometimes, like this week, my faith is a little shoddy. It could be a little shaky. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like your faith is a little... Thank God I'm not saved because of my faith, but because of the faithfulness of our Savior. Because if we were saved by our faith, we would all be damned, doomed, because none of us have perfect faith. It's real. It's real, and that's the gift of God. But sometimes it's, it shrivels. Sometimes it gets weak. Now, we will not be shaken because God is with us, the God who loves us, and we know that love is found ultimately in Jesus. Psalm 34, 18 the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Those of you that are facing tremendous difficulty, pain, and loss, my brother-in-law, Scott, holding the hand. If you know Scott, Scott's cheesy, okay? He's my brother-in-law. He's cheesy, a little goofy. I love him. He doesn't call Michelle, my sister, his wife. You know what he calls her, right? Ugh. A little cheesy, but sincere. Calls her my bride. Told me yesterday, he said I was, he was feeling really blue, really depressed one day, this was years ago. And uh, 
and, and, and Michelle starts playing this song. Um, something about being happy. I forget. It's a classic song. She plays that song, and she comes out dancing to cheer him up. Just down, because you know Michelle. Just being silly. And he said, that's the first time in my life when I ever knew a woman loved me. Like, she couldn't let me stay where I was. She had to lift me up. Like, it was just beautiful. He is crushed right now in spirit. He's absolutely crushed because his bride is in severe distress. And he may not be able to take her home. And yet God is saving him. He's already been saved. His sins are forgiven. But it means he's rescuing him from despair. It means he's lifting him up out of his circumstances, above his circumstances, to thrive by faith because God is there. Scott's not, I'm not there, right? None of us are with him right now. Some of you have been visiting him. Thank you so much. Many of you have been praying for him. Thank you so much. He's there alone right now, right? No, because the Lord is with him. And because Scott continues to look to God, he is saved from his circumstances. Psalm 73, verse 28. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 73. For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. The person who knows and benefits from the nearness of God can't hold it in. They have to testify. They have to tell the truth. They have to say, look at what God has done for me in the midst of this mess. Look at what God is doing. I'm so grateful. Again, going back to Scott, because it's on my mind, he can't help but praise God for what he has had and what he still has. The nearness of God is good. It's good. Because he's there loving, caring. Psalm 145, 18, last Psalm. 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him all who call on him in truth. If you feel like the Lord is not near, if you feel like God is far away, because listen, I know sometimes it feels like God is far away. I have felt that. You've probably felt it too. If you haven't, get ready, because you will. It sometimes feels like God is far away, but God is never far from his people but he is near to all who call on him, meaning he makes his presence known. He makes his grace abundant. God is near to those who call on him. If you feel like God is far away, perhaps, perhaps it's because you have not cried out to him, called to him. Now, maybe you have been calling to him, and it still feels like he is far away. The promise is not the immediacy of relief, but the guarantee of it. Some of us know what it's like to pray for a long period of time without any relief. The Apostle Paul knows what that's like. But even then, God is near to the brokenhearted. He is close to all who call on him. And that is the exhortation for us all, to call on the name of the Lord today. To call on him. We, as a people, as Christians in particular, we are a people that should be calling on the Lord, trusting him rejoicing in his nearness and his presence, knowing that the only way that any of this is possible is because of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the hypostatic union, all of these grand, beautiful truths. Christmas? Is Christmas about the birth of a baby? No. 
Yes, it's about the birth of the Son of God, but it's about what it means. It means that God is with us, that God loves us, that God is for us. And if you have not yet called upon the name of the Lord in your life, this promise that was given to Israel, that was taken to the Gentiles, this promise that we celebrate today is for you as well. If you have not yet believed in Christ, this invitation for God to be near is for you. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The call here is for you to draw near to God by confessing your sin, seeing your ugliness, seeing your corruption, seeing what you deserve, which is justice and judgment. Let your superficial worldly joy be turned into significant, meaningful, godly sorrow. And draw near to God by faith in Christ. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Meaning he will place you, hide you in Christ in the heavenly places so that in him you have everything. Well, this is part of the, of the significance of Advent an aspect of the gift that we have in Jesus. It's what we celebrate. It's what we preach. It's what we believe. And it's what I pray we will all believe and hold to today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us what we need to learn, that you would overcome our unbelief and doubt, that you would strengthen our heart, that you would restore our joy, and that you would do all of this through Jesus, your son. Because we know that in him, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. And because we know what it means that you are with us, that you love us, we don't have to despair or let fear rule us in this world. Help us to have confidence like the psalmists knowing that you walk with us, before us, behind us, and rule over us. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen.